Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Great. Uh, Thank you. Uh, It's just going to be straightforward me sharing what I've found. My resource is a book called Leviticus, Holy God, Holy People by Kenneth A. Matthews. And that was provided to me by our wonderful pastor, Terry Burns, to help me with today. Uh, So let's start off in prayer and, and then we'll get right into it right away. Lord, thank you so much for today. We just ask you bless uh, our meeting today. As as uh, Ken said, it's just wonderful to get together with our Heartstrong family every morning to uh, see smiling faces when most of the times in the world, when you walk out the door, there's nothing but solemnness. So we just thank you so much for a wonderful cheery group so early in the morning. Bless me as I speak, that I would be open and be able to clearly communicate what I've prepared to the people here, and that they would uh, see Jesus in everything in the Bible and um, in Leviticus 16 and 17, as I share, Lord. I just thank you so much for all of the teachers and for helping us through this book that has not received a lot of attention. Uh, We thank you, Jesus, for all that you do in your mighty name. All right. Can I ask for a volunteer to read our memory verse, which is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, please. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. All right, so uh, we'll just jump right in. I'm doing Leviticus 16 and 17. And I'm just going to start off by saying that I'm taking a little bit of uh, a dose of my own uh, medicine that I gave and shared with um, Glenda uh, when she presented that we are all unique parts of the body and that we don't have to worry about the teachings of one and compare ourselves. So I'm just going to be doing what I do here and not think that I'm any less than any other teacher Uh, because we're all equal parts in the body of God. So I just hope to uh, basically share with you how Leviticus 16 and 17, uh, maybe surprisingly, maybe not, just scream Jesus. And um, so that's the seriousness. And my kind of joke line is I want to, my hope is from today that we'll be moving, I'll help you move from Leviticus to Leviticus. But let's get started. Uh, today is the Day of Atonement. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share. You can kind of follow along through the chapters. We're not actually going to be reading through the uh, the chapters. I'll let you guys do that on your own afterwards if you want. I'm going to be sharing my notes here from the book that I mentioned. And then you can review it afterwards. But it does move chronologically through the, the chapters uh, in terms of the comments that uh, I'm sharing. So in the Jewish calendar, 
Passover is the most important festival day, being a memorial to the beginnings of Israel as a people when they were liberated from Egypt. If Passover is the most important, then the most solemn day is the Day of Atonement, known in Hebrew as Yom Kippur. This sacred day is the subject of chapter 16 of Leviticus. The Day of Atonement was a day on which the people afflicted themselves by acts of penance, uh, such as fasting. As Good Friday is remembrance for a Christian, the Day of Atonement elicited from people both remorse for their sins and a sense of relief at receiving the forgiveness that the day provided. Good Friday produces in us deep sorrow at our sins that Jesus bore on the cross, and yet the good that the cross achieved in our behalf kindles in us deeper devotion to the Lord. The message of chapter 16 is critically important for three reasons. One, it occurs in the center of Leviticus. It's a bridge connecting two halves of the book. So first we have chapters 1 to 15, which we've already gone through. And this describes the rituals of sacrifice and the purity regulations. And then, of course, chapters 17 to 27, which we'll be uh, reading through either on our own or in a group. Uh, and these describe characteristics of holy loving by the covenant community. And don't worry, I know I'm talking about 17, so I didn't forget about that. The affected of the Day of Atonement made sacrifice, purity, and holy living a possibility for another year. Number two, it is a ritual that on the whole best illustrates the theological teaching of Israel's worship of its covenant Lord. Teaching essentials for appropriate worship, which are what God demands of worshipers, the steps that God instructs the Israelites to perform so their worship is acceptable, and the spiritual benefits that worship brings to the people. And third, the theological message portrayed through the rites performed on this most sacred day serve as a template for understanding the message of Christianity. The centerpiece of Christianity is the cross, where Jesus' death resulted in the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of his blood for all who repent and express faith in Christ as Savior. The contents of chapter 16 entail the most elaborate and complex ritual recorded in the book of Leviticus. Uh, the chapter's 34 verses can be broken down as follows. 1 to 10 is the preparation uh, for the ritual. Verses 11 to 28, the ritual procedures themselves. And verses 29 to 34, uh, introductions for the Day of Atonement as an annual memorial. Actually, sorry, that's, that's chapter 15. So um, I'm going to read verses 6 to 10 right now. Because uh, verses 6 to 10 are a summary paragraph that basically encapsulate the core activities for the day. So. Verse six, Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Then he must take the two male goats, present them to the Lord 
at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by the lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat, chosen by, the, by lot to be sent away, will be kept alive standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. So you can see that these verses 6 to 10 and chapter 16 do provide a summary of the entire chapter. While the sin and guilt offerings previously mentioned in Leviticus address offenses of individuals, the Day of Atonement dealt with the accumulated sins of the whole nation that had been committed in the previous year. A bull was slain as a sin offering for the high priest, so the priests were purged first of their sins. If the high priest were impure, then the sacrifices he offered and the altar where he would be presented would be contaminated by sin, rendering them unacceptable. This is a good reminder that I must try my very best to keep a short uh, list of my sin and to repent and confess as soon as possible so that I can be most effective for the good works of God's kingdom. The ark is identified as the footstool of God, according to 1 Chronicles 28.2. The better translation is the place of atonement. In other words, it was the place where atonement occurred. It was the place where God will meet you, as in Exodus 30, verse 6. A Jewish legend not found in the Bible or in Jewish interpretation says that Aaron was fitted with a rope around his waist or his legs when he went inside the curtain. If the wrath of God flared against the high priest and he died on the spot, the priest from the outer room pulled the body out of the most holy place. What this legend shows is the Jewish understanding of the peril that the Day of Atonement caused. The high priest next turned to the offering on behalf of the people, the two male goats, one for the Lord and one for Azazel. First was the sacrificed goat for the Lord as a blood offering, sacrificed at the altar. This resulted in the people's ritual impurities being removed from the holy place and the sins of the people were forgiven. The result of ceremonial removing of all impurities accumulated through the year by the people. Now the whole sanctuary was purified and available again for another year. The progression of the cleansing ritual moved from inside to outside, from the most holy location, at the mercy seat to the holy place, to the altar in the courtyard. This made me think, if there, is, uh, if there was this much effort made to cleanse the temple in order to keep it holy for the Lord, what effort am I making? to cleanse and keep my body holy, the temple of the Holy Spirit? And is my effort equal to the effort made to keep the temple cleansed? That's what it made me think about. Not that my salvation depends on this because it doesn't, but how much more would God hope I keep my temple clean and righteous versus contaminating it by allowing unholiness through my eyes, my ears, my mouth, Second, the goat of Azazel. This was commonly known as the scapegoat, the one to take blame for others. The priest stood in for the people and confessed all their sins, being then transferred 
to this scapegoat. The priest acknowledged uh, their, the need for forgiveness. And the scapegoat then bore the sins for the people then making atonement for the people. The scapegoat was then removed from the tent, taking the sin with it, and then removed from the camp, again, taking the sin with it. It was led out into the wilderness, never to return to the camp. The two rams were sacrificed. Remains of the carcass were taken out of the camp and burned. The individual had to fully cleanse themselves by washing and burn their clothes. The community was then freed from any residual effects of purification process. The writer of Hebrews recognized that the Day of Atonement was a picture of the death of Christ, shed blood, provided complete purging and eternal forgiveness for Christian believers. The author of Hebrews feared that the Christian readers who were suffering persecution might abandon their Christian faith and return to the Jewish traditions that were more acceptable to political authorities. The author demonstrated that the gospel was not only better than the previous system, but that the message of the Old Testament was fully realized in the person and work of Christ. This same message is for us today as we contemplate the meaning of Christ's death. Hebrews compares the old ritual system of sacrifice and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He showed the Day of Atonement only provided temporary success as it was needed annually, yet the atonement of Christ was final and fully and finally forgiven were we. It came about by the Lord Jesus who gave his body to crucifixion. This one-time offering made all who believe perfect in the eyes of God for all time. And this is what really blew my mind. The basis for this assurance was the role that Jesus as the eternal high priest played in the sacrificial offering. He was not only the perfect sacrifice, but he was the perfect eternal high priest. For he did not make atonement for himself, as the high priest in Israel was obligated to do. Jesus had no sin. Thus, he was free to bear our sin and guilt. Our problem was not his problem, but he chose to make our problem his problem. As the eternal perfect high priest, he was given eternal access to the heavenly throne room of God. The author of Hebrews observed that the earthly tabernacle was a copy, a model for the authentic realities of the heavenly tabernacle where God resides. By the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, as the perfect priestly intercessor, achieved the purging and atonement that the animals and the old system of the old system could never accomplish. Aaron's arena was earthbound, a replica that was designated to point to eternal realities. Jesus's arena was the eternal, heavenly, most high place. In the heavenly throne room, the Lord transported his blood and made intercessions for us entirely and finally, after which he took up residence in the throne room, sitting at the right hand of the Father, where Aaron's proper place was outside the most holy place, never to dwell there. The Lord Jesus was at home in the presence of the Father. We are not to add to the finished atonement that Christ has already accomplished. There is no deficiency in the death and resurrection of our Lord. There is no way that salvation, Christ declares, can be approved upon or altered in any way. However, it is a temptation in our humanness to think that we must contribute in some way to our own salvation. Our labors are not useless, though, but as a basis for our forgiveness and acceptance um, with God. They are woefully inadequate. They are rather the fruit of our faith in the completed salvation God has achieved for us through Christ. Religious symbols and traditions of worship 
and of instruction cannot replace or supplement the realities of our Lord's death. The author of Hebrews exhorts his readers, as I do to you today, to act on this precious gift of Christ's sacrifice by entering into the holy throne room. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 and 10.22. As such, we can confidently pray knowing that our Lord hears our prayers and supplies his mercy and grace without end. We too often neglect the rich and unfathomable blessing of prayer. Though we, through the shed blood of Christ, can enter the very presence of the Father and make our supplications known and our praises heard. We dare not be frivolous in our prayers, either by neglect or presumption, but we can pray with confidence, without timidity. As James told his readers, draw near to God and he will draw near to you in James 4.8. If we do not pray, it is because we do not fully grasp what it means for us to have this irrevocable access to the heavenly most high place. And that is the summary for chapter 16. So we will now move on to chapter 17, which is titled The Prohibitions Against Eating Blood, which doesn't sound too wonderful off the start, but I can assure you it is very, very rich and does point to Jesus once again. So we don't hear much today about reverence for respected things, being recognition of what deserves honor. Chapter 17 calls for God's people to express their worship of God as creator and redeemer through reverencing the holy things of the Lord. Chapter 17 leads the way for the second half of the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 to 27, which scholars call the holiness code. Those living in communion with God. This chapter also explains why the sacrifices of chapters 1 to 16 are effective for making atonement for the sins of the people. The key verse that explains why sacrifice provides the avenue for continued life with God is chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood represents the life that God has created, has protected, and now has delivered up on behalf of his beloved people. As a result, they must honor God and his gifts by their special reverence for the blood of animals and for human life. Three ways that the people must honor the Lord as creator and redeemer were one, by the worship of the Lord exclusively, two, by acknowledgement of his gifts, and three, by cherishing life, whether human or animal. These admonitions arise from the instructions in this chapter regarding the proper handling of blood given for the forgiveness of the people's sin. Location was extremely important. In the ancient world, the place of worship was bound to the identity of the deity who was believed to live in the sacred shrine. Hence, the importance of worshiping in the tent as it was representation of the heavenly throne of God, where the Lord 
symbolically lived. Also, where the sacrifice was made was important. To make an offering, a sacrifice, anywhere other than the tent would be considered a tribute to another god, lowercase g. Therefore, it was done at the temple to remove temptations to worship other idols. Today, it's more likely a threat to us, um, the allure of wealth and pleasures uh, than from worshiping in a particular location. The Apostle Paul admonished his readers, saying, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3.5. Uh, all of this is good to remember, but covetousness is declared idolatry as gain can become one's God. Again, lower class G, lowercase g. When we make earthly acquisitions our aim, we lose sight of our heavenly commitment. As Jesus instructed us in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot love God and money. While visitors were not required to perform sacrifices to God, they were not permitted under any circumstances to ingest blood. So these are non-Jewish non believers. They could not practice idolatrous religion either to prevent such from contaminating the law. Paul was zealous for the original teachings of Jesus. False ideas and teachings were a constant threat to the perseverance of new Christian organizations. So the author here is comparing how um, the visitors to the Jewish camps could not practice idolatrous religion and how we as Christians need to be careful of that as well. Willful neglect or resistance to congregation with church is prohibited in the New Testament to prevent this from occurring. The writer of Hebrews recognized the need to assemble regularly so that members might be encouraged in faithful Christian living. Hebrews 10 23 to 25. So just uh, as do-it-yourself spirituality uh, was to have no place in Israel, it is not to have a place in Christian life today. And uh, if you are here today, then you are assembling with uh, Christians to be encouraged in faithful Christian living. The gifts. The Lord is the source of the many blessings we receive. Prohibition of eating blood, blood acknowledged that. It was not limited to the Israelites. It was severe. It was a severe penalty for the offender, including the possibility of death. And it was absolute. If the people ate blood of sacrifice, it was a denial of the blood as God's gift for their atonement. Superstition regarding blood was rampant in the ancient world. It has its counterparts today in various cults, especially associated with the occult. Blood was thought to possess power inherently. By eating the blood, the person appropriated spiritual power of the blood. Drinking or eating blood was part of ancient rituals. The Bible adamantly opposes this understanding and prohibits eating blood in any form, whether directly or in meat not properly drained. Deuteronomy 12, 23, 1 Samuel 14, 32 to 34. The blood is a gift from God to have the effect of atonement. 
I have given it for you, he said in verse 11, announces that the blood is God's to give and by the gift forgiveness is achieved. The gift must be honored by the recipients by proper handling of blood. To drink the blood would be tantamount spurring, spurning the giver, being God, and using the blood for the individual's own purpose. Blood, however, is not inherently the spiritual life of a creature, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. In verse 11, does not mean that the blood possessed the spiritual life force of the victim that was released when eaten. The point of the passage is that the life of the victim was represented by its blood, and the shedding of its blood meant death. Life depends on blood. Genesis 9, 6, God established the penalty for murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Prohibition against murder is theologically stated, for God made man in his own image. Human life is a gift from God who has bestowed it and consequently requires the proper handling of it. The blood then that God gives to the worshiper is to be returned to the Lord at his altar. It is sacred and cannot be profaned. And now we move to the tie-in with Jesus. When we speak of the blood of Jesus, we must not confuse the power of the blood itself for the sinless life of Jesus it represents. Jesus's blood was human blood. It did not possess any mystical, magical properties. The power was the shedding of blood, the giving of the life of Jesus. God has given us the life of Jesus and we must cherish it. Solely by the blood of Christ, the perfectly obedient Savior, is forgiveness of sin realized. As Christians, we must have reverence for this and accept this. Therefore, we must also treat the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup with utmost seriousness. Participation in the table, being the, the Lord's Supper, uh, the eating of bread and drinking of the cup, is a witness to our faith in Christ when we do so and his atoning death, but also it is to his future return when he shall gather his church. The table's elements are only for Christians and can be administered only by gathered churches as described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, we are called to examine ourselves before receiving the Lord's Supper so as not to eat and drink as low the Lord's death has made no difference. I just want to say that again that we are called to examine ourselves before receiving so as not to eat and drink as though the Lord's death has made no difference. If we come to the Lord's table without regard for the redemption he has provided and the unity of the body that he has secured, we deny by our attitude the reality of Jesus's death. One purpose of Jesus's shed blood was to purify believers making us fit for God as his treasured possessions. If we exhibit brazen lives of sin, we make Christ's atoning action as if of no effect. Titus 2.14. Are we as Christians required to drain the blood uh, if butchered meat in butchered meat before consumption? Can we consume raw or undercooked meat and fish that contains blood? Uh, so, no, we don't have to drain the blood and we can eat um, undercooked meat and fish that contains blood. We do not observe a matter 
pertaining to a sacrificial ritual since the sacrificial system of the Old Testament has been realized in the death of Christ. The Old Testament law in its ancient form is no longer obligatory for the church today. Valuing life. Finally, there are a few directions of handling of blood for animals not intended for worship. These are the animals that are hunted or carcasses found by uh, believers. The instructions reflected the teachings of the law that presupposes that all life, whether human or animal, was sacred and deserves special treatment. When we say that life is sacred, we mean that all life comes from God and that all life, whether to give or take, is his exclusive prerogative. Human life and animal life as creations of God must be respected and cherished according to their place in God's created order. Murder of a human being is the most horrific crime committed by a person because he murders one made in the living, in the image of God. We must not uh, engage in wanton killings of animals and birds by taking life savagely and disposing of them ruthlessly. Such treatment of life, whether human or animal, actually dehumanizes mankind because as creations of God's image, our humanity includes the stewardship of caring for the creative order. And I just want to note here, um, you know, a lot of people might laugh, but if someone here has actually taken a life, Christ, uh, the redemptive power of Christ and his sacrifice applies to you and that we all fall short of the glory of God. So Christ has died for you to forgive you of your sins for that act. Chapter 17 which points to the sacredness of human life, also points us to the supreme gift of God, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus yielded his life. It was not taken from him by human force. Rather, it was the force of divine love for us, for you, compelled Christ to suffer for our sins, for your sins, and to deliver us, to deliver you from sin and impurity. Ephesians 5.2 and walk in love as Christ loved us, as he loved you, and gave himself up for us, as he gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you for joining us today. Have you ever joined one of our live online Bible studies? When you become a HeartStrong member, you will have access to all of our live Bible studies. These studies are amazing because we get to do it together. We listen to the teaching and then we spend about 30 minutes discussing what we have learned. You will hear powerful testimonies, insights, and questions and prayer times from people like you and me. We would love to see you there. Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. And we look forward to seeing you at one of our live online Bible studies soon. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples together.